This is our second session on Paul's Colossian prayer from Colossians chapter 1. And the title of this week's scripture snack is called The Goal of the Christian Life. The Goal of the Christian Life. And before we jump into this week's topic, let's catch us up to speed on what happened last week from Colossians chapter 1 verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Paul had never even met this church in Colossae. It was established through one of his disciples named Epaphras. But even though Paul had never met this church, he didn't stop praying for this church because by virtue of them simply being brothers and sisters in Christ, he enjoyed praying for them. He looked forward to the opportunity to pray for them, and he did it ceaselessly day and night. And that's what he says here. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. And last week we talked about how when Paul is praying that God would fill the church in Colossae with the knowledge of his will, he's talking there about filling them with the knowledge of Scripture, with his revealed will, with his revealed word. Not so much um, his hidden will, meaning uh, where should I live or who should I marry or what job should I take. That's the, the hidden will of God. But talking about his revealed will that is revealed through Scripture. And the only way that God reveals that to us is through his Holy Spirit, which indwells us and makes the Scriptures clear for us. So on that note, um, we finished off with the question last week. Uh, why is it important to know the will of God? Why is it important to know the will of God? That Paul has gone at such lengths to be able to pray for the church in Colossae that they would understand the will of God through the illumination of the Spirit. Why is it important for the Colossians and for us as Christians today? Why is it important for us to understand the will of God as it is revealed in sacred scripture? And the answer is this. So that we can please God. So that we can please God. That's why it's important to understand the revealed will of God. Just like a obedient child wants to please his earthly father and wants to satisfy his earthly father and experience the, the blessedness and the smile and the grace um, of his earthly father. So also we want to experience those blessed things with our heavenly father. That's why it's important to know the will of God. And Paul says this, he says at the end of verse nine, we're praying these things for you so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. That's the end result of you being able to understand his will better through the power of the spirit is so that ultimately you can go out and please him and satisfy God and be in right, blessed relationship with God and experience his blessing. That's the end result of you understanding and knowing his will better. And I'd like to follow that question up with a Another question, which gets us into this lesson here, is what is the goal of the Christian life? What's the goal of the Christian life? If you had to sum it up in one phrase or one sentence, what what would you say is the goal of the Christian life? Is it to do good works? Is it to be baptized? Is it to make disciples of all nations? What would you say is the ultimate goal of the Christian life? And though those things I just mentioned are very good things to be doing as a Christian, I think that this all-encompassing umbrella statement really sums up what the goal of the Christian life is, and it's to please God. The goal of the Christian life is to please God and to experience the blessedness of being in right relationship with our Heavenly Father and satisfying Him and glorifying Him and teaching others about Him and, and doing good works and being baptized. All those things file themselves under the category of living a life that is pleasing to God. Now, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is impossible to please God. No matter how many, quote-unquote, good works you may do, you are actually displeasing to God because those works don't proceed from faith. 
without the faith that we now have as Christians, we could not please God. Everything that we did was sin, (laughs) even the good works that we thought that we were doing. But now that we have faith and God has given us faith and he's given us a new heart and he's regenerated us so that we can now actually embrace him and see him as valuable and love him and want to follow him. Now that God has given us that faith, Paul says to Christians now, he says, find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord. Scrap and claw your way to a deeper knowledge and understanding of God's will so that you can live it out and you can please God. So that's the goal of the Christian life, is to be able to find out more and more what pleases God and experience more blessedness of being in right relationship with Him. And so I'd like to investigate that um, kind of concept today in verse 10 specifically. When Paul says, Colossians 1.10, he says, So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. And what does it mean to live a life worthy of the Lord? Well, it means the exact same thing as pleasing God in every way. Following God and following Christ as closely as you can so that you can make sure that you are pleasing him in every facet of your life. Paul actually says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, in regards to what it means to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Just like he says in Ephesians chapter 5 earlier, find out what pleases God, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, do that as well. Whatever happens, whether you're in prison or you're in the palace, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ and be pleasing Christ. Whatever life situation or station God has you in, your goal as a Christian now is to please God, whereas you couldn't do anything to please him before as a non-believer. But now that you're in the kingdom of Christ and in the kingdom of light, like he prays later on in this prayer, you can now please him. So go out and sacrifice everything that you have to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ and live a life pleasing to him. So there are four things that all God-pleasers do, Paul says in this short prayer to the church in Colossae. And he outlines it in the rest of the verses that we're going to be looking at In the next couple sessions, we're just going to be investigating one of these ways that we can please God um, today. But he gives a list of four separate things that all God-pleasers do um, in their relationship with him. And this is not an all-exhaustive list, but this this is a pretty comprehensive list of things that you should be doing if you are pleasing to God, if you're pleasing God with your life. And you will be doing these things as a consequence of being in right relationship with God. These things will just naturally happen because God has regenerated you and given you a new heart. You're going to want to do these things, by the way. These are not forced. You don't hate doing these things any longer like you did when you were a non-believer. But if you have these things going on in your life, these four things, you can be pretty confident that God has made you his child and adopted you from the kingdom of darkness and brought you into his kingdom family of light. And he says, uh, one of the four things is you will bear fruit in every good work in verse 10, which we'll look at here shortly. You will grow in the knowledge of God as well. You will grow stronger in your faith to endure longer in your faith. That's in verse 11. We're going to devote a separate week just to that verse. And you will also give joyful thanks to God the Father for the salvation that he has wrought for you in Christ. You will do these four things if you are a God-pleaser. If you are a Christian, you will be doing these four things. So let's look at um, the first that Paul outlines for us here. Bearing fruit in every good work. What does it mean to bear fruit in every good work? Uh, It doesn't really make sense. We don't really talk in such categories today. 
Um, you're either a good person or you're a bad person. We don't talk about bearing fruit or not bearing fruit. You're either good or you're bad. Well, Paul even talks about this here at the, at the back half of the phrase. He says, every good work involves bearing good fruit. So, in other words, a good work has good fruit proceeding from it. You can't have a quote-unquote good work without good fruit being produced from it. And the only way that you can bear fruit, we're going to see here in one second, is out of a relationship with Christ. That's how you bear truly good fruit, fruit that lasts, fruit that is pleasing to God. You can do good works without having good fruit behind it. And ultimately, it will prove itself to not be a good work. From our perspective, it might might look like a good work, but it's not going to be bearing the type of fruit that comes out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in the end, it will prove to not be a good work whatsoever because the unbeliever, whatever they do, cannot please God. So what does it actually mean to bear fruit? So glad that you asked. Because Paul tells us in a separate letter, we've covered quite a few of his letters just in passing here, but in the book of Galatians, to the church in Galatia, he tells us this. He says, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, remember earlier in the, in the passage, it says that the only way that we can understand God's will, when he's talking to the Colossians, is through the power of the Spirit. We can only understand spiritual realities and bear true fruit through the power of God's Holy Spirit that he gives to us as Christians. We can do nothing apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an oft-neglected part of the Trinity, an oft-neglected person of the Trinity, I should say. He is a neglected person of the Trinity because he's shy. <laughs> he's not always in the forefront. But we need the Holy Spirit to be able to do anything pleasing to God in the Christian life. And this is what Paul says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, another word for that. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, Every quote-unquote good thing that human beings can do is a fruit of the Spirit. (laughs) And if you want to please God with these good things, then you better be doing them by the power of the Spirit. Everything that is good about humanity is only wrought by the Spirit. The fact that non-believers even can quote-unquote do good works and not hurt people and kill people and do these things is because the Spirit is at work in the world. And he is bringing forth these these good fruit, but they're not pleasing God with such good fruit, whereas the Christian can actually please God. And he he makes an interesting statement at the end of the verse here. He says, against such things, there is no law. There is no law against such things. In other words, the government can't outlaw love, can't outlaw joy or peace or patience or any of the other fruit, right? Be crazy. You'd be living in an unjust system if people were outlawing these good things. So if you're living by the fruit of the spirit and not by the misdeeds of the body, like it says here, um, as he says the word but, he, he, he contrasts the fruit of the Spirit with the fruit of wickedness and the fruit of the flesh and the bad deeds. He says you can't outlaw the good deeds. Societies try to produce these good deeds as much as possible so that the society runs well. You can't outlaw such things. So if there are more Christians in society, um, the government would have a lot less problems on their hands. So we bear this fruit by nature. Just being a Christian, as a consequence of having the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we're going to bear these good fruits. And that's what Paul's praying over these uh, Christians. Bear more and more good fruit. Do more and more good works that are by the power of the Spirit. Do good things, and you'll be pleasing to God. You'll be pleasing God with your day-to-day life. 
And Jesus echoes this sentiment as well in John chapter 15 when he makes one of the most key statements about bearing fruit in all of Scripture. He says to his disciples in the last discourse, in his 11th hour, talking to the 11 disciples before he was about to be crucified the following morning, he says to his disciples, I am the vine. This is his last I am statement that he makes out of seven in the entire gospel. He closes out by instructing his disciples in his last moments with them on earth. He's instructing them, caring about their souls and their well-being, and in turn, instructing us as well. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Now, I used to get tripped up on this phrase when I first started studying the Bible because I was like, what's a vine? That doesn't make any sense. How does it have a branch? Well, this is the equivalent of saying, I am the trunk and the roots. You are the branches that proceed from that trunk or from those roots. He's talking about a grapevine here. And the grapevine, the vine on, on the grape tree, if, if you will, was basically the trunk. So let's not get tripped up over this phrase here. He's basically saying, I'm the trunk and you are the branches. And Jesus, excuse me, um, in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah and in the Psalms, God says that he was the, the, the true Israel, the true trunk, the true tree. And now Jesus is saying, I am the true trunk and the true tree. And in me, you have life. And he's changing the analogy a little bit. But he carries on. He says, if you abide in me or remain in me and trust in me and have faith in me and continue on following me, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. That's a consequence of being a Christian. We can take heart that we will bear not just some fruit, but much fruit out of a relationship with him. And why? It's because we abide in him, the trunk, the roots. We are naturally going to be able to bear fruit. You cannot staple fruit onto a tree and make it last. You can't keep stapling fruit onto a tree and have it be a legitimate fruit that has proceeded from the tree. No, 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 no. That's what the non-believer does. They try to do good works and staple themselves onto the tree but that's not how it works. You have to abide in the tree and be a branch that proceeds from the tree and you will bear much fruit and you can't even help it. That's who you are. You have a new identity because you've been grafted into the tree and you will bear much fruit because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what he says here and later in the verse as referring to non-believers. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't bear legitimate fruit. It will just be like trying to staple fruit onto a tree. It's not legitimate and it will be burned up on the day of wrath for the fake work that it actually was. And he says uh, earlier on in the passage, he says a tree, excuse me, a branch that's just laying on the ground cannot bear real fruit. It's just a brittle branch. <laughs> that's what a non-believer is. It's a branch just lying on the ground ready to be burned up and it's not bearing any actual fruit to begin with. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But Verse six says, if you, excuse me, if you do not abide in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. So I got ahead of myself there. If you don't abide in me, you are like a branch that's going to be thrown away and it will wither. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and they will be burned. You're an illegitimate branch. You're a fake branch. You know the true branches by the true fruit that it bears. But the false branches, they're not bearing any lasting fruit, and they will be burned up and exposed on the last day. So if you're not in the tree right now, it means you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ. You have not repented of your sins and said, Jesus, you are my all in all, and I just want to have a relationship with you. I need you. I repent, and I want to be in the tree, so to speak. 
And if you genuinely mean that and you want to follow Christ, he will graft you into the tree and you'll be born again and you will start bearing more fruit than you ever imagined in your life beforehand. I want us to point, I want to point us to a, um, a similar prayer that Paul makes to the church in Thessalonica, another letter that he wrote. Man, we're just covering all the letters here because his prayers are similar. They have similar threads running through them, right? And Paul says this to the church in Thessalonica in his second letter to them. Notice the similarities, by the way, between this prayer and the church that he prays over the believers in Colossae. 2 Thessalonians 1.11 says this. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you. Notice the, the prayer patterns of Paul's life here. He's constantly praying for his churches. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, that you would live a life pleasing to God. That's the ultimate concern for Paul. That's why you study the scriptures. That's why you seek God's will, so that you can be living a life that is pleasing to God and quote-unquote worthy of him. That's the same thing as living a life pleasing to him. So we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. He's saying, please God, by bearing fruit, that's my prayer for you, Thessalonians and Colossians alike. Bear fruit and you will be worthy of his calling. You will prove yourself to be God's disciple. You will prove your faith through your fruits that you are bearing in life. And he says, but by the power of his spirit, he's praying over this church that God would bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. And I'd like to exhort whoever's listening to this right now with this. Oftentimes we have good desires and good deeds that we want to do so badly that are prompted by faith that we never complete because they don't get brought to fruition. They don't get brought to completion. They never materialize. And Paul is praying that that would not be the case for the Thessalonians or the Colossians alike. If you have a single desire for goodness or a single deed that you want to perform by faith, Paul's praying, go out and do that. Produce fruit. Bear fruit in being in relationship with, with God. You'll bear much fruit. Don't just bear a little fruit. Bear, bear a lot of fruit through your faith that you have placed in Christ. So if you have a good desire that you want to perform, such as maybe opening a business or starting a small group or starting a Bible study at your office or what have you, do that. Bring that deed to fruition by the power of God's Spirit, and you'll be pleasing to God in that moment. Don't leave deeds left undone in the sight of God. Like the church, I forget which church it was in Revelation chapter 3, the Apostle John is condemning them because God is saying to them, your deeds are undone in the sight of God. Bring to fruition your deeds. Don't leave them undone in the sight of God. And you will please God with so much fruit that you will be bearing uh, out of a right relationship with him. So be bearing fruit in a relationship with God. And this will automatically happen, by the way, by placing your faith and your trust in him. And you will just be pleasing God left and right through the life that you are living in relationship with him.